Welcome to the JMD Podcast, your fortnightly dose of inherited metabolic disease. In every episode, I invite authors from our journal to discuss their work with me, sharing some unique insights into their research and explaining why they do what they do. This is our 89th long form episode and we've been a further 30 or so short cast. So there's plenty to listen to on all manner of topics in inherited metabolic disease. So be sure to check out our back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode on new treatment ideas in disorders of valine and isoleucine metabolism. Hello there. It's always a pleasure to welcome back previous guests to the podcast. It must mean that they at least didn't hate it the first time round. So it's with that in mind, I welcome Dr. Sander Houghton of the Department of Genetics and Genomic Sciences at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai to discuss his recent paper, Acyl-CoA Dehydrogenase Substrate Promiscuity, Challenges and Opportunities for Development of Substrate Reduction Therapy in Disorders of Valine and Isoleucine Metabolism. Um, Sander, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, James. It's my honor. <laughs> well, the honor is all mine. Um, I feel like podcasts about promiscuity are probably a bit racier than this one. So before people complain that we're misleading them, perhaps you could give me some background. Our focus today is on disorders of valine and isoleucine degradation. Which ones are those? Yes. So I will try to keep the podcast prim and proper, but talking about disorders of valine and isoleucine degradation, that's probably not going to be a big problem. So both valine and isoleucine are two of the three branched-chain amino acids. Maple syrup urine disorder is probably the most well-known disorder that affects the degradation of these. But in this paper, we're actually looking at disorders that are more downstream in the valine and isoleucine degradation pathway. So valine and isoleucine degradation yields propionyl-CoA, and it is thought that they are the major contributors to the metabolite accumulation in propionic acidemia and methylmalonic aciduria. Both PA and MMA are, as you know, multi-system disorders that are treated through dietary and emergency interventions. And these interventions are all focused on decreasing propionyl-CoA substrate accumulation. But there is still an unmet therapeutic need in these disorders. And then we also studied two other defects that only affect the valine degradation. These are short-chain inuyl-CoA hydratase deficiency, also known as ECHS1 or crotonase deficiency, and 3-hydroxyisobutyl-CoA hydrolase or HIPCH deficiency. And these are disorders that are biochemically and clinically very similar. They're two consecutive enzyme steps, and they present as a spectrum of disease phenotypes ranging from very severe Li-like presentation to more milder forms of dystonia. And also in these disorders, substrate toxicity is an important part of the pathophysiology and preventing substrate accumulation through valine reduction is thought to be beneficial. But as you know, dietary interventions can be challenging for many reasons and a pharmacological approach is often preferred because it may be more efficacious or convenient for the patients. So we were exploring if a pharmacological substrate reduction approach is feasible in these disorders and we started with saline experiments. And that's what's described in this paper. Well, I'm glad you're the one who's saying all those enzyme names because uh, I struggled after just saying the title of your paper. So as I understand it, this is a situation where you're looking to treat a condition by creating another. It's a concept that was actually discussed in our podcast on GLS-1 knockdown in OTC deficiency. How do you see it working here? Yes, you are correct, James. We are trying to decrease the toxic accumulation of the substrate of the deficient enzyme 
through the inhibition of upstream enzymes that are thought to contribute to the production of this substrate. This is known as pharmacological substrate reduction therapy. And indeed, glutaminase knockdown in OTC deficiency is a recent example that you have discussed. But I think the classic example is the use of nitizinone, also known as orphidin, in tyrosinemia type 1. Nitizinone inhibits upstream in tyrosine degradation and prevents the accumulation of the hepatotoxic metabolites. Pharmacological substrate reduction therapies are also available for Gaucher disease and for primary hyperoxaluria. But we believe that there are more opportunities to develop such therapies. And we are currently in our lab working on substrate reduction therapy for glutaric aciduria type 1. And this paper is the first work of us venturing into valine and isoleucine degradation. So we studied the inhibition of acyl-CoA dehydrogenase 8 or ACAT8 and short branch chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase as BCAT, which both function in valine and isoleucine degradation. And deficiencies of ACAT8 and SBCAT are considered biochemical abnormalities without serious clinical consequences. And therefore, we reasoned that inhibition of ACAT8 and or SBCAT may be an interesting therapeutic opportunity in disorders of valine and isoleucine degradation because you would argue that if the disorders that are associated with these defects are not harmful, then inhibition of these enzymes is likely also not harmful. When I first saw this paper, the thing that struck me is, as a journalist, I don't see a lot of metabolic patients. I do see a small cohort, but short branch-chained acyl-CoA dehydrogenase had just come up in a clinical conversation. And it caused me to look into a bit more. And it's curious because if you look from a screening point of view, it doesn't seem to be a problem. But there are plenty of case reports where children were investigated because something was felt to be not right with them. And they were found to have short branch-chained acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency. So is it a disease or not? You know, it's a challenging question and nobody wants to say probably, you know, it can never have any clinical consequences. But I guess what I have to say is this requires an understanding of the concept of ascertainment or sampling bias. So children with undiagnosed neurological disease will at some point undergo metabolic screening, likely with plasma amino acids, acylcarnitins, urine organic acids. And although in most cases, an identified biochemical abnormality is going to be causal for the observed disease, this is not necessarily always the case. And there are actually quite a few biochemical abnormalities without clinical consequences. So this is not unheard of. And a well-known example is ASCAT deficiency. And a while ago, you discussed ascertainment bias in 3-MGH, so 3-methylglutaconyl-CoA hydratase or AH deficiency, which Ashley Herzog. And a final example that I would like to highlight is the condition also known as hyperlysinemia due to a defect in ASS. Those are all thought to be biochemical abnormalities without serious clinical consequences. So with ascertainment bias, you will often see that these cases have non-specific clinical features such as autism spectrum disorder. And sometimes in families, healthy siblings have been diagnosed that have the same biochemical abnormality also suggesting it's not harmful. And the only way to really address causality in these cases is to see if symptoms are associated with a biochemical abnormality in population-based unbiased screens, such as newborn screening. And this is probably one of the reasons that we know that ASCAD deficiency, which is associated with elevated C4 carnitin in newborn screening program, but you know when we follow up these patients that have been diagnosed in newborn screening, 
they figured out that it's not a harmful condition. And very similarly, as BCAT deficiency leads to elevated C5 carnitine. So you can also detect that in newborn screening programs. And that is because many newborn screening programs include C5 carnitine because it's elevated in isovaleric acidemia, which can be a serious disorder and needs proper treatment. So some infants with elevated C5 carnitine actually do not have isovaleric acidemia. They have BCAT deficiency. And research has shown that these kids do fine without interventions such as isoleucine restriction. And in fact, it has been quite well established as, as BCA deficiency occurs relatively frequently in people of Hmong descent. So there are quite a few uh, cases described in the literature. That's interesting what you're saying about C5, because I think we've just published a paper on a diagnostic algorithm for use in, in newborn screening and follow-up around uh, isovaleric acidemia from a German group. So I feel like I was just looking at that yesterday. You've mentioned ACAD8 being the other condition you were targeting. Is that similarly a sort of a, a, a non-disease? Yes. And, you know, it's very odd, but ACAD8 deficiency is also detected in newborn screening through elevated C4 carnitine, just like ASCAD deficiency. And again, it seems that identified cases with ACAD8 deficiency remain healthy without any therapeutic intervention. Therefore, available data on ACAD8 and SBCAD deficiency would suggest that pharmacological inhibition can be safe. Of course, we do not know if simultaneous inhibition of ACAD8 and SBCAD is safe. That's something we have to investigate. But the main goal of this study was to start exploring the efficacy of ACAD8 and SBCAD inhibition on the accumulation of toxic substrates in the aforementioned disorders. Okay, well, thank you for sort of making that so clear. So for those that came for the talk of promiscuity, and hopefully they're still with us, what are we actually talking about then? Yes. Well, finally, we get to the more racy part of this uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so enzymes are often considered to be specific for one substrate or, so to speak, to have a high fidelity. And of course, enzymes should have such fidelity because otherwise metabolism would become quite a messy business. But you can imagine that when substrates are alike, it's difficult for an enzyme to discriminate between them. Often, its substrate will be bound with high affinity but similar molecules will be bound with relatively lower affinity. And such substrate promiscuity has been documented for many acyl-CoA dehydrogenases. As an example, the substrate of ACAD8 is isobutyryl-CoA and that of SBCAT is 2-methylbutyryl-CoA. Both are 2-methyl short-chain acyl-CoAs that differ only in one carbon in their chain lengths, C3 versus C4. And indeed, SBCAT was initially thought to function in both isoleucine and valine metabolism. But now we know that SBCAT has its highest catalytic efficiency with 2-methylbutyryl-CoA, whereas ACAT8 has its highest activity with isobutyryl-CoA. And under normal condition, this substrate promiscuity may very well not be a relevant phenomenon. But you can imagine that if one inhibits or deletes ACAT8, SBCAT could compensate for this inhibition or defect. And conversely, loss of SBCAT function may be compensated for by ACAT8. So that's, I think, in short, what substrate promiscuity is all about. Okay. And I suppose that may have influenced, you know, what you saw when you did your work, because in this study, you used CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing in HEK293 cell lines. What did you actually find? Yes. So we have used CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing 
to knock out genes in HEC293 cells to create disease models. And then when we have those disease models, we can try to see if we can treat these disease models through the knockout of our targets for pharmacological substrate reduction therapy. And we've done that also, for example, for disorders of lysine metabolism. And although HEC293 cells, you know, they're a very primitive cell and model, so to speak, but a lot of metabolic pathways are active in these cells and you can do very nice biochemical studies in these cells. So our key findings. First of all, we were able to create HEC293 cell line models for propionic acidemia and crotonase deficiency by knocking out PCCB and ECHS1 genes, respectively. And I think one of the surprising findings that we found was that in the crotonase or ECHS1 knockout, we observed a pronounced decrease in lipoylation of the E2 subunit of the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And although it was already known that ECHS1 deficiency leads to a secondary PDH defect, changes in lipoylation have not been reported yet. So I guess that was a novel finding that we find very interesting and that we're currently following up on. Second, we were able to create HEC293 cell line models for ACAT8 and SBCAT deficiency. And one of the striking things that we observed was that if you knock out SBCAT, there is a very pronounced decrease in C3 carnitin. So C3 carnitin is directly derived from propionyl-CoA. And this suggests that SBCAT has a rather large contribution to the production of propionyl-CoA in these HEC293 cells. And this finding might be of potential interest for the treatment of propionic acidemia and methylmalonic aciduria because it would suggest that if you inhibit SBCAT, you could really decrease the load of propionyl-CoA in these disorders. But of course, this is just in HEC293 cell lines, so we need to investigate this further, but we thought this was a very interesting observation. And then third, when we knocked out ACAT8, which is supposedly involved in valine degradation, we did not rescue the defect in the lipoylation in the ECHS1 knockout HEC293 cells. And that was unexpected and very surprising because if you read the literature, ACAT8 should contribute to the production of the toxic metabolites in proteinase deficiency. So the most logical explanation here seemed to be the infamous substrate promiscuity of acyl-CoA dehydrogenases. And we um, tested this by knocking out both ACAT8 and SBCAT in these ECHS1 knockout cell lines, but again, we observed no rescue of lipoylation. And then we were even able to make quadruple knockouts. So we also knocked out MCAT. So we had a knockout for ECHS1 combined with knockout of ACAT8, SBCAT, and MCAT. And again, we observed no rescue of lipoylation. So at this point, we haven't really figured out what's going on with the substrate promiscuity for isobutyl CoA, the substrate of AKD8, but it seems to be more extensive than previously recognized. And the acyl CoA dehydrogenases that display activity with these substrates still remain to be identified by us. But that's one of our future goals. So, a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned that in the ECHS1 knockout, that you see this sort of secondary PDH defect. Is that within the, the sort of the human phenotype of that disease? Is it similar to PDH deficiency or is it something that's unique to the cell line as opposed to within a human model? I think this is actually one of the main biochemical phenotypes in crotonase or ECHS1 deficiency. 
You know, what we know about this disorder is that there is accumulation of methacrylcobe, which is thought to be a very reactive metabolite, which is evidenced by specific metabolites that these patients excrete in their urine. And studies have suggested that this methacrylcobe damages the respiratory chain, which is something we did not find in our HEC293 cells. But the PDH defect is also a prominent finding in these crotonase deficient cell lines. And if you think about the clinic, which is, you know, a Lee-like syndrome, that fits with a defect of PDH. So I think indeed one of the main biochemical consequences when you knock out ECHS1 is going to be a problem with uh, PDH. And that was nicely reproduced in these uh, HEC293 cell lines. Um so there are some promising results in here. I always like to ask my guests, where do we go next? How do we progress from cell lines? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, HEC293 cells are a nice way to start an investigation. And, you know, if you're lucky, it works out nicely as a model. But of course, there's cell lines. We're not close to treating patients at all. So I think the next step that I would like to take, I'm, you know, a, a researcher, so I would like to move on to mouse models. I have a lot of experience with mouse models. They often accurately reflect human metabolism. So studying mouse models for SBCAT and ACAT8 deficiency and figuring out how these enzymes contribute to toxic substrate accumulation in vivo, I think would be very useful. And if you have SBCAT and ACAT8 knockout mice, you can also start to explore if making a double knockout, so both inhibiting ACAT8 and SBCAT at the same time, whether that is a viable approach or not, because you can see if that makes the mice sick or not. You know, the SBCAT and ACAT8 knockout mice have been created, actually. There is one paper on ACAT8 knockout. These mice appear relatively healthy, so that would confirm the human situation. SBCAT knockout mice have also been reported, although not published, but they have been generated as part of an international mouse phenotyping consortium. So we know that these mice are viable and do not have any, you know, particular prominent clinical phenotypes. So I think both mouse models would be an interesting starting point to start looking a little bit more on how these enzymes contribute to toxic substrate accumulation in the disorders that I would like to treat. Oh, well, I hope to hear more about that in the future then. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's quite a nice sort of palate cleanser after a series of podcasts on gene therapy. It's nice to know that there are still people pursuing other lines of research in inherited metabolic disease. If you'd like to read this paper, please click the link in the podcast description, or you can search for promiscuity in acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, but please do that on the general web pages and don't just type promiscuity into a search engine. Sander, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you again for giving me this opportunity to talk about my work, James. And I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the grant support from the Propionic Acidemia Foundation and the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, who have supplied some of the funding for the studies that I have described in the paper. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you to them too. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.